Thank you. It's such a, a joy to be with you. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for giving me the privilege of uh, spending this time with you. Um, my favourite place in the, in the whole world is the Isle of Skye, which is just off the northwest coast of Scotland. I remember the very first time I went there, I was there with a, a good buddy of mine. And the first day, we were just going to drive a little bit, just have a quick look around and then figure out where we were going to sort of hike for the day and, and kind of set ourselves up. And we spent like hours and hours and hours just driving because it's one of those places where every time you, you go around a, a corner or you go over the crest of a hill, there's some new amazing view. And you think, let's just, let's just go to the next bit and see what's around the next corner and over the next hill. And it strikes me, I've been just thinking of this as we were, were singing and praising God this morning, that being a disciple of Jesus is a lot like that. Because there is always something more to be wowed by in Christ. Uh, we've never finished our discipleship. I used to sort of feel a little bit intimidated that, you know, we'd never get to the end of our kind of learning. That, that frustrated me. Now it excites me. Uh, we will spend however many years God gives us on this earth discovering Jesus is even better than we thought he was. So thank you for just the encouragement I've already received of, of being among you. I, I don't drink coffee. I've never liked coffee. But being with you guys this morning has been my caffeine. So um, I'm awake now, which is great. Um, so let's see what this Jesus has to say about singleness. Um, our, our topic is, is singleness in a, in a highly sexualized culture. Our culture's in this weird place where, on, on one hand, it loves singleness. It loves not being committed. It loves lack of attachment. It loves freedom. But it hates abstinence. It hates self-control. It hates going without physical intimacy or sexual intimacy if you're not married. So it loves a secular version of singleness and hates a Christian version of singleness. And it's all too easy for what is going on in our culture to sort of seep into what is going on in the church and we, we realize we're carrying more of our culture around with us than we thought we were. And so I found, as I've looked at the whole issue of singleness, I found it to be very corrective for me. And uh, I hope it will be encouraging to all of us, whether we're single or not. There's a, there's a number of reasons why all of us need to look at this topic, by the way. Um, some of us in the room will be single and we'll be like, yep, yep, great, excellent, about time. Um, but actually, this is something all of us need because everyone who is married now half of you are going to be single again. Sorry to put that so starkly, but that's, that's reality. Whether through bereavement or through divorce, we will be single again. Uh, being married now is no guarantee that we won't be single again in the future. Uh, my, my grandfather died a couple of years ago, aged 102 um, sweet, a sweet man. He was married to my grandmother for just over 50 years. I remember their, their 50th wedding anniversary. Uh, she died not long after that, which means you can, you can have a 50th wedding anniversary and still in the totality of your life have been single for longer than you were married. 
So singleness will be on the horizon uh, in the future for some of us, and better to think about singleness before you find yourself painfully back into it. Um, here's another reason all of us need to think about this, that the passages that concern singleness in the Bible are meant to be read and received by the whole church. So even in 1 Corinthians 7, which we'll look at in a minute, where Paul says now to those who are betrothed or to those who are unmarried, he's still assuming the rest of the church is, is listening in. Uh, we need to hear this teaching. Uh, it's relevant to all of us. And then the final reason why all of us need to think about this is... And I know you know this, but the church, church is a body. As a, as a single man, I have a stake in the marriages in my church being healthy. If the marriages in my church are unhealthy, actually that's going to affect me. And it's the same for, for our, our single brothers and sisters in the church. If, if their singleness isn't a healthy singleness, that will hurt the body. We're, we're, we're that interconnected. Jesus has knit us together that organically. Um, a, few, a few days ago, I was um, uh, just finishing up in one room, and I, as I was, I was walking around the house barefoot, it was early in the morning, um, I was walking out of my bedroom as I pulled the door closed. I mistimed the withdrawal of my foot from the doorway. <laughs> and discovered that that little gap between the, the bottom of the door and the, and the floor is just the right height for, you know, pain to ensue, which it, which it did. And uh, what was interesting was, as, as I was, you know, absorbing the reality of what had happened to my toe, it wasn't just my toe that was affected. Other parts of the body joined in. So my hand immediately reached down to, to grab it, uh, my eyes started watering. I'm not embarrassed to say that. My, my vocal cords made a con contribution of a, of a pitch. I didn't know I could get to a high C, but apparently I can. Uh, one of my legs decided hopping was going to help. But it wasn't just my toe that hurt, I hurt. And when one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. So let's think about singleness, uh, given the highly sexualized culture in which we find ourselves. I've got a few things for us to, to kind of reconsider. Uh, the first is singleness itself. We need to rethink singleness. Um, in our culture, obviously, the idea that you would be sexually abstinent for any period of time is seen as, as laughable at best and dangerous at worst. But there's a kind of church version of that same kind of way of thinking. I, I ran into someone a while ago who I hadn't seen for over a decade, someone I, I used to, to, to work with, and I ran into at a Christian event, and I was like, oh, so great, great to see you, and we were catching up on what each of us had been up to for the past 10 years, and I said, hey, when I last saw you, your kids were teenagers. What, what are they up to now? They must be in their late 20s. And she said, well, so-and-so's married and the other one's engaged, so they're both sorted. And I thought for a minute, sorted. What does that make me? Am I unsorted? There's a sense in which if we're, if we're not yet married, we haven't graduated into the sort of the grown-up version of our discipleship. And yet the most complete and fully human person who ever lived 
were single. Uh, Jesus never married, despite Dan Brown novels. Uh, Jesus was never romantically involved. Jesus never had sex. And so we cannot point to any one of those things and say that that is essential for being a full human being. Otherwise, we're saying Jesus is subhuman. So let's have a look at what, uh, what Jesus' apostle Paul says about some of these things. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7 uh, and verse 30. Uh, where is it? Yeah, verse 32. Paul says, I want you to be free from anxieties. Don't you love that Paul wants us to be free from anxieties? Just every once in a while, do you get the sense God might be on your side? There's a humaneness, isn't there, to, to what Jesus has for us in his words. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. There are two things Paul shows us about singleness in, in these verses, many things in this whole chapter. Paul shows us what we've been what we've been spared if we're single. Back in verse 28, Paul says this, he says, if you marry you've not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. Interesting. Uh, Paul is not down on marriage. Paul, we know from other parts of the New Testament, says some of the most beautiful and exalted things anyone has ever said about marriage. And yet that same Paul can also say, those who marry will have worldly troubles. That's not the only thing to say about married life, but it is one of the things to say about married life. Marriage and singleness each have their own ups and downs. And the danger is that we compare the ups of marriage with the downs of singleness. And we forget that there are downs of marriage. And there are ups of singleness. Marriage is difficult. It's glorious. It's wonderful. It's a, it's a gift from God above. But it's difficult. And I'm, I'm grateful for married friends who've, who've been honest with me about the ups and the downs of married life. Uh, there's, a, there's a family I spend a lot of time with. Sometimes when I go around there, the kids are all being cute and precocious, and I kind of feel, man, it'd be great to have kids. Other times I go around there and I'm thinking, okay, when, when can I leave before it's rude? And I kind of get back into the car, drive off, think, the gift of singleness, the gift of singleness. Paul says those who marry will have worldly troubles. And maybe some of us have come to this event this week bringing with us the emotional burden of, 
of some of those worldly troubles. And I hope this will be a place where whatever we're bringing with us that is weighing us down, we can, we can share with one another. We can carry one another's burdens. But Paul doesn't just talk about what a single person is spared. Paul talks about what a single person is freed for. So Paul is saying in that, that part we read out that actually there's a sense in which singleness means we can serve the Lord in a way that is less divided. He says that in verse 35. He says, I, I say this to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul is not saying we are being unspiritual when we marry. We, we marry to the glory of God. But Paul is just recognizing that the reality that for, for those who are married, your, your time and loyalties, you're, you're, you're pulled in lots of directions. Uh, for those of us who are single, we're not without commitments, we're not without pressures, but there is a sense in which we can be undivided. Uh, for me to come here for a few days wasn't complicated. Um, that is not the case for my friends with families. I've, I've seen families try to leave the house. <laughs> and it's, a, it's, a, it's an all-day event. A friend of mine's got three young kids. I remember being around there once, and we were all going to head out to the park or something, and it took more time to get out of the front door than it did the time we spent in the park. Uh, child number one was getting his, his shoes and, and coat on. Child, child number two was, for some reason unaccounted for and no one knew where <laughs> child number two was. Uh, child number three was a, appeared in a Batman costume, which wasn't great for, for heading outside. So by the time all of these things had been done, it was almost, you know, sundown and, and time to, to call it a day. There's a sense in which if we're, if we're single, we, we can plow more of that flexibility into service to Christ. I love that Paul is assuming what, what will be on our hearts more than anything else in verse 35 is our devotion to the Lord. There's lots of selfish reasons you can want to be single. But the point of singleness isn't to serve me. It's not to make my life easier. No, Paul says we can be undivided in our devotion to the Lord. So we need to rethink singleness. If we're, if we're tempted to think of singleness ultimately in terms of, of it being a negative, about what, what you go without by being single, I suspect we're not tracking with Paul. Uh, we even, you know, in our, our language, we even describe singleness as being unmarried. We don't say married people are unsingle. So it's easy to define singleness as being the absence of something rather than the presence of opportunity. So we need to rethink singleness. Uh, here's a few more things and we'll, we'll speed up a bit. We need to rethink intimacy. Um, our culture has so collapsed it's thinking about sex and it's thinking about intimacy into each other. It, it can't conceive of any form of, of intimacy and closeness that isn't ultimately sexual. 
I remember listening to a, a radio show a while back. This was during the sort of the 100-year anniversary of the First World War, and they were reading out extracts of, of diaries from people who served in the First World War. And it was just a sort of a, a thing for a, for a few weeks as, as we sort of tried to get a sense of, of what life must have been like for these, for these soldiers. And uh, some of these diaries talked about the sort of the, the deep sense of connection and friendship that developed between soldiers in the trenches. And they would get occasionally people on to kind of discuss what they'd just been heard and to sort of reflect on it. And I remember listening to one of these things and this soldier had been talking about this just deep affection he had for one of the, for the other men he was with. And one of the kind of commentators went, well, you know, they were obviously gay. And I remember thinking, that's such a Western way to think. It's such a recent way to think. It's such an unhealthy way to think. We assume affection and closeness must mean something sexual. So what we've done in our, our culture is we've downgraded friendship. Uh, we turned it at some point from a noun into a, you know, the word friend from a noun into a verb. And you friend someone when you add them on social media. The fact is you can have lots and lots and lots of sex and not be having intimacy. I've seen that from, you know, people I've known and, bless you, by the way, um, I've known and, and chatted to on college campuses. Uh, I think we see that in Scripture. I think we see something of that with, with people like David and Solomon. And similarly, you can have lots of intimacy that is non-sexual. We see that in the Bible too. Now, in the Bible we're given far much broader categories of intimacy than our culture gives us. So if you want something sort of fun to do uh, as a little project, just read through the book of Proverbs and make a note of everything the book of Proverbs says about friendship. And you'll realize, firstly, you can't be wise in God's world without friends. And secondly, friendship in the book of Proverbs is a soul-to-soul relationship. It's not just, you know, a buddy you hang out with and you like the same kind of movies or something like that. A friend is someone who knows your soul, who knows the, the inner sense of what's going on in your life. Uh, Jesus himself gives us a, a similar definition of friendship. One of my favorite verses is John 15, verse 15, where Jesus, speaking to his disciples, says, no longer do I call you servants. It's not that we don't serve Jesus now as his disciples. We do. It's that servanthood isn't the sort of the central category Jesus now has for us. He says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master's doing. If you're only a servant then lots of things are above your pay grade. You don't need to know what's going on. You just need to know what you've been told to do and to do it. You don't get to ask questions about why. So Jesus says, I don't call you servants, but I wouldn't believe this if it didn't actually say it right here in front of me in the Bible. Jesus says of his disciples, I've called you friends because... 
And whatever Jesus says next is going to show us what Jesus believes to be defining a friendship. I've called you friends because I've added you on Facebook. No. I've called you friends because all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. What does friendship consist of? According to Jesus, what makes friendship friendship is disclosure. Jesus says, I've called you friends because all that I've heard, I've made known to you. I've, I've let you in the whole way. I've let you in on everything. I'm spilled, I've spilled all the beans. That makes us friends, Jesus says. That's what we need. And our cultural obsession with, with collapsing all forms of intimacy ultimately into something sexual makes it worse for everyone. I know married couples who have floundered because they haven't had friends. So we need to reflect in our, in our, our Christian, Christian communities that the, the breadth of intimacy that the Bible makes available to us. Which leads to the next thing. We, we need to rethink church. Because church is meant to be ground zero for this kind of intimacy. Uh, one of the things I've, I've been had my eyes open to in the New Testament. It's one of these things when you, when you first see it, you then see it everywhere and you can't unsee it. It's just how much honesty and disclosure is, is meant to be one of the, the sort of drivers of fellowship in the New Testament. 1 John 1 verse 7, if we walk in the light, i.e. if we come clean, if we're real with each other, John says we have fellowship with one another. Two Christians after church in the presence of coffee is not necessarily fellowship. But as we come clean with one another and, and actually open up about what is really going on in our lives, John says, hey, that, that is fellowship. That's when things really start cooking spiritually and it makes the gospel more real. Or James 5.16 says, confess your sins and pray for one another that you may be healed. I remember the first time I kind of really tried to think through that verse, I remember getting stuck on the word healed and thinking, well, what kind of, what kind of healing is James talking about here? Is he talking about physical healing? Is he talking about emotional healing? Has anyone done a PhD on this? Do we know what the word is? Do we know what else that word is, is used to describe in, in the Greek world? Does it come anywhere else in the Bible? And then it occurred to me, why don't we just confess our sins and find out? <laughs> I mean, whatever James is talking about is going to happen when we confess our sins to each other. So let's just confess our sins to, to one another and then whatever James is, is saying will happen, will happen. But it's difficult to do that. There's, I can confess my sins to God because he already knows them. I don't lose face with him. But that's not the case with you. I've got more, in one sense, it feels like I've got more to lose. 
there's reputational damage <laughs> that's going to happen if you really know what's going on in my life. Which is why we don't want to do that. But when we do, James says God pours healing into our lives, into our hearts, into our souls, into our bodies. So again, no one's told me to say this, but whatever you're sitting on in your life right now at the moment, that you're nervous of someone else knowing, share it this week with someone. Trust Jesus with enough to confess that sin to somebody else. I don't think we're going to experience renewal without that. Uh, next, we need to rethink sexuality. One of the big things that is holding a lot of Christians back from sort of embracing singleness if they find themselves in a, in a situation of long-term singleness, one of the things that holds people back is a fear that actually I'm going to be leaving, living a diminished life. And part of the reason for that is because our culture has funneled so much freight onto what will happen to us if we feel sexually fulfilled. And so people will think, well, I, I don't want to waste my sexuality. And if I'm, if I'm single, perhaps for the rest of my life, I will be, I'll be wasting my sexuality. So here's what's helped me with this. I'm, I'm so grateful, a, a guy I know who's very much gone down the kind of affirming route theologically, but he was the one who challenged me on this and said, Sam, isn't, aren't you just wasting your sexuality by being sexually abstinent as a single person? Actually, he, he asking me that question triggered a whole load of uh, thinking for me, and it's, again, it's, it's shown me more beauty in Jesus than I had realized was there. So here's what I've begun to, to see, and uh, forgive me if this is something you will all know already. The Bible begins with a wedding. A guy and a girl get together on page two. They're actually made for each other. And the Bible ends with a wedding. Christ and the church. And what you begin to realize as you, as you work through the Bible is that first marriage is like a, a movie trailer for that last marriage. It's a pointer to it. This guy and girl getting together becomes, for the rest of the Bible, a picture of how one day heaven and earth is going to be united in Jesus Christ. And so as we begin to, to meet this God in the Old Testament, we begin to realize he's not just the the deity up in the sky, he's a husband. 
he makes lavish covenant promises to his beloved. And we discover his people in the Old Testament are not just his subjects, they're his bride. Sadly, often his, his wayward and, and unfaithful bride. When Jesus shows up in the Gospels, one of the things Jesus describes himself as is the bridegroom. He says, listen, I, I am that divine husband that you've been waiting for. And it's, it's time to get some rings on fingers. And so throughout the New Testament, our relationship to Jesus is spoken of with marital language. Ephesians 5, Paul talks to husbands and wives and then says, guys, I'm, I'm actually talking about Jesus and the church here. That's what this is about. In 1 Corinthians 6, he says, just as the man joins himself to his wife and they become one flesh, he says, he who comes to the Lord is, is one spirit with him. And then at the end of the Bible, we have that, the climactic wedding supper of the lamb and his bride. And so we begin to realize marriage is reflecting the story of the whole Bible. And if that is the case, then it, it shifts my perspective on marriage and it shifts my perspective on singleness because both of those things become about, ultimately, Christ being the bridegroom. Um, if this is the case, it helps me have a, a healthy, dignified view of marriage which doesn't idolize it. Because it means however good marriage is, it's not ultimate, it points to the thing that is. Um, just to, you know, lower the cultural tone, um, the first Zoolander movie. <laughs> There's a scene, if you've, uh, Zoolander is, is based on the idea that the more good looking you are, the more stupid you are. I, I personally find that very offensive. But, um, <laughs> you didn't have to laugh that much, okay? <laughs> and uh, the main character, Zoolander, is a model, so he's really stupid. And there's a scene where they've decided to, to build a school in his name, in his honour, and they have the architect's model, and they invite him to come and look at the model and see what it's going to look like. And I can hear you doing the line now in your heads. Because he looks at this model and he, he's furious. Is this a school for ants? <laughs> it needs to be at least. This is good. <laughs> Evidence of lives well spent, my friends. <laughs> and the absurdity of the scene is, is he's he's mistaken the model for the reality. And we do that with marriage all the time. Your marriage is not meant to fulfill you, it's meant to point to the one who will fulfill you. Um, I, as a pastor, I get to take weddings from time to time. I love doing that. But my one condition now, when someone says, okay, can you, can you do our, 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 our wedding ceremony? My one condition is, yes, but you must not write your own vows. Because in, in my experience, every single wedding I've been to where the, the couple have written their own vows, the vows they have written entirely miss the point of the marriage ceremony. Yes. It's just about how they feel. Yes. So it's your wedding day. We know you're into each other, right? <laughs> we don't need 15 verses of terrible poetry to know that you guys <laughs> like each other. 
No, understanding that actually the big story of the Bible is, is about God preparing a bride for his son, Jesus Christ, means I won't demean marriage because look at what it points to. And I won't idolize it or worship it again because look at what it points to. But similarly, it helps me have a healthy view of singleness because it means that singleness also has a unique way of testifying to the gospel. Uh, Jesus said there will be no human marriage in the age to come. We will have the reality. We will have the bridegroom in, our, in, in his fullness. We, we won't need the signpost anymore. And so by foregoing marriage now, singleness is a way of both anticipating that reality and testifying to its, its goodness. It's a way of saying to a, such a confused world that Jesus is that real to us and he's that good. And so if marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, singleness shows us its sufficiency. It's a way of declaring to a world that is so sexualized that sex and romantic companionship is not ultimate. But in Christ we have what is. So singleness in, in that frame is, is not a waste of sexuality, it's a fulfillment of it. I don't have to satisfy my sexual desires to fulfill my sexuality. I fulfill my sexuality by by letting my sexuality point me to the one in whom I find ultimate fulfillment. By pointing me to the union that is deeper than any other. Pointing me to the consummation to come that is greater than any other. And pointing me to the one who is more radiant than any other. That's it, actually. That's the end. I <laughs> felt like I needed another sentence or something, but um, <laughs> how about I... Um, shall I pray? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the goodness of Jesus. We thank you that we're not here to memorialise him or to pay tribute to him. We're, we're here, Lord, with him. Thank you that Christ is present with us now. And our Father, we, we long to honour Jesus. Uh, Paul wrote in, in Philippians, he said, I want to know Christ. Lord, he, he did. He was an apostle. We think he, we think he did know Jesus. And yet, Lord, the, the heart desire of someone who knows Jesus is to want to know him more and we want to know him more. So Jesus, please would you reveal more of your glory to us. Would we be captivated by you? Help us to live wisely in this world, Lord. It's, it's not an accident you've placed us where you have at this particular time. And we wouldn't want it any other way. 
So help us to be salt and light. Help us to be grace and truth in the time in which we find ourselves. Father, help us to be honest. Help us to use this time together over these days to come clean with one another. And if there are people who are sitting on things that have, have not been recognized, not been admitted, not been confessed, Father, help each one of us to walk in the light with each other. And we pray that this time together would thereby be burden lifting for every single one of us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.